Broadcasting from the Unshackled Studios in Melbourne, this is Will's Front, brought to you by theunshackled.net. Now here's Tim Wills. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special Monday night edition of Wilmsfront in place of Tim's News Explosion. It is the 4th of April, 2022. We are live on the Wilmsfront YouTube, DLive and Odyssey channels, as well as on the interactive entropy software where you can ask myself and my guest tonight uh, questions and send through uh, super chats. It is currently 8.30 p.m. here in Melbourne, Victoria. The federal election is due to be called any day now by Prime Minister Scott Morrison following the budget uh, Josh Frydenberg delivered last week. Uh, All we know in this period of political limbo is that the election will be in a Saturday in May. We just don't know which Saturday yet. Uh, Scott Morrison, he will enter this campaign having failed to fulfil one of his key election commitments from his 2019 miracle win, and that is to pass a federal religious discrimination act. The bill has been indefinitely shelved. Uh, This was after five Liberal moderate MPs crossed the floor to vote against it in the House of Representatives in the February sitting period this year. The religious discrimination bill that was presented to the Parliament, though, had been so watered down so significantly uh, during the consultation phase that actually had no extra real protection for religious freedom. The promise by the Morrison government uh, to Australians of faith to pass a religious discrimination act was born out of the Ruddock review into religious freedoms uh, after uh, same-sex marriage was passed following the the marriage law postal survey as uh, Christians and other Australians of faith were concerned about the further erosion of erosion of their right to live their faith in their everyday life uh, in accordance with their own conscience. Everyday Christians uh, continue to be hauled before human rights and equal opportunity commissions because of uh, vilification and discrimination complaints against them by those who say their religious beliefs have uh, offended or hurt them. Uh, these uh, Christians, they can even have their livelihoods and professional occupational licenses uh, threatened when they're called before uh, review boards. Uh, So this is why the Australian Human Rights Law Alliance was uh, established in uh, 2019 as a a firm uh, with with its uh, mission uh, to uh, help Christians with uh, legal advocacy and legal advice in these sorts of uh, situations. Its principal lawyer is uh, uh, John Steinoff, who is my guest uh, tonight. John, welcome to Wilmsfront. Thanks, Tim. A pleasure to be here with you tonight. That was a very good and comprehensive introduction for tonight's topic. Well done. I'm glad I was able to, it's always a challenge to summarize a, a, a long running a critical issue just in the intro of the show and not have you waiting in well, the, the virtual green room for too long. Yeah, well, it's good to be here and I'm looking forward to talking across a whole bunch of topics tonight with you. Uh, what would you like to start with? Well, I'll first start with that uh, mention that uh, the Australian Human Rights Law Alliance is affiliated with the Australian Christian Lobby. Uh, The current director of the Australian Christian Lobby, Mark Niles, used to have 
your job before he he moved uh, to the uh, over to the Australian Christian Lobby. And as the the name Christian Lobby uh, suggests, uh, its role is to lobby for law uh, and uh, law changes that uh, will help better uh, protect uh, Christians uh, in their everyday life. While over at the Australian Human Rights Law Alliance, it's uh, your primarily primary role is to help uh, Christians navigate the various uh, federal, state and territory legal frameworks, which are becoming uh, increasingly difficult for Christians to, to navigate. And uh, they can fall, they, uh, as uh, a lot of your cases show, it just takes one complaint under any of these laws and they find themselves in a really uh, stressful uh, situation. Yeah, that's correct. So yes, you're right. We are associated with and a sister organization of the Australian Christian Lobby. I like to use uh, the analogy of the Hemsworth brothers. I think everyone are familiar with um, three brothers, are Hemsworth brothers, one of them very famous one of them slightly famous and one of them unknown. So ACL is the definitely the Chris Hemsworth of the family of companies uh, that, it, that makes up Australian Christian lobby. Uh, and we are the younger brother. Uh, so they are the, the giant there. They've spent great work over the years done by uh, Jim Wallace when he was a general manager and then Lyle Shelton. And then most recently, Martin's taken it to new levels uh, with his advocacy for Christian uh, Christianity. So we share a lot of DNA with the Australian Christian Lobby, but we are a sep now a separate organisation. And the genesis of Human Rights Law Alliance was that it, originally it started inside ACL as a sort of clearinghouse for the increasing amount of people who are calling and asking, what do I do? I'm getting in trouble at work. I've had some hostility from university. I've gone through a disciplinary complaint. I've got someone who's chasing after me for a vilification claim saying that I've said bad things about the LGBTQ community, et cetera, et cetera. And it started out, and this was Martin's role, to then give those cases to lawyers who were sympathetic, who were willing to help in different states and territories. But as that workload increased, uh, it was soon realised that a specific purpose-built law firm would be a good initiative to start and so human rights law alliance was born as a separate law firm i would i came on board as the principal lawyer at the beginning of 2019 and so we've been running cases in our own right uh since then and uh there's plenty of work out there tim and uh your website, uh, which is uh, uh, for, uh, for viewers and listeners, is uh, hrla.org.au. It uh, goes, uh, has a comprehensive list of the, the individual cases uh, you've been involved in. Uh, some, some of the names have been changed uh, to obviously uh, protect uh, legal uh, processes and some people from further... Uh, vilification, uh, but yep. it's we'll, 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 it's pretty clear that the the main two uh, issues that uh, 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 cultural issues that Christians get 
into trouble. Uh, well, when I say trouble, uh, fall afoul of these uh, uh, these tribunals, and uh, when there's complaints made, is basically uh, when they express their honestly held beliefs on LGBT and and life issues. Yeah, that's right. Those seem to be uh, the particularly contentious issues of the day. They are the issues which have seen a lot of uh, political scrutiny over time and where you've got some very active uh, lobbying and, and activist voices in the community and where we've seen the, the most massive overhaul and transition of uh, public views and public morality uh, is in this space around LGBTQ uh, issues. And so as the prevailing fashionable ideologies of the day have changed rapidly over the last 40, 50 years, and people of faith generally tie themselves to a set of beliefs and virtues and principles that are largely unchanged, it's meant that there's been increasing conflict and hostility between uh, them. We also have moved from, I think, a time where we talked about a confident pluralism in our society, where you had this idea that many people of many different beliefs could exist and coexist right alongside each other uh, in relative harmony. Uh, and it was okay if you believe something completely different to what I believed, that was fine as long as we didn't get in each other's way. And uh, it's been described at various times as pluralism or multiculturalism, etc. But now we seem to be moving into a time where society is becoming more aggressively secular. Uh, and there is this hostile progressivism, which is saying that not only must you tolerate certain views, tolerate certain ideologies, but you're increasingly called on to enthusiastically affirm and support those views. And that often, again, is tied up with LGBTQ issues, which are the issue uh, du jour. Uh, and this is what's often leading not just Christian people, but many people to be facing hostility in their workplaces, at universities, in social media, etc., when they don't want to bow the knee to whatever is the fashionable idea of the day, or where they criticize something which is being held up as a sacred cow, like a Black Lives Matter, or climate change, or progressive politics. So that movement in society, I think, is starting to really sharpen and become more of a what they call a culture war. Um, I, although I've never liked that term because the people I'm working with mostly are involved in cultural defense, where the attack is coming from uh, one side and they're just trying to raise their shields and uh, parry it away. They haven't been the aggressor in most of those situations. Uh, the, the 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 pluralistic society that we used used to have, uh, as uh, you alluded to, it's not just uh, about well uh, Christians and other religions and people of of no faith living together, but living together in harmony. But it's uh, it, we're seeing it all throughout society. You mentioned that well, Black Lives Matter is not a has nothing to do with religion or anything like that, but it's there's there's the uh, there's becoming now and it's filtering through why uh, the uh, workplaces are becoming such a a 
minefield is because uh, you all of the the corporations they they adopt the the the, the fashionable the the uh, what is the winning uh, zeitgeist, which is the the only one that's uh, allowed and. Uh, Black Lives Matter is one thing, but also the uh, I'm getting uh, just mentioning other cultural issues. Uh, the uh, uh, recognize uh, voice to parliament on indigenous issues. That's uh, that's another one where even people who are not Christians but just have conservative or libertarian or nationalist uh, views, they're very marginalised. Uh, not just a and and. This is uh, uh, not just at, at work during work hours, and this is uh, what uh, how Israel Folau found his uh, Rugby Australia contract terminated. It was something he said on his private uh, Instagram outside of work, but uh, he had his contract terminated. Yeah, absolutely. So Israel Folau is a classic example of where this progressive creeping of of, of these issues hit a flashpoint with someone who was very public, very famous, and had uh, a profile. Uh, and that was in the case of Israel Folau in 2019, which was one of the key sort of milestones and waypoints that we saw uh, as part of the last election, uh, which really brought religious freedom for a brief moment into the public uh, arena shed some light on it, people were talking about it, and became one of the issues that was definitive in the 2019 election. There was a perception that Scott Morrison was a person of faith who was also more of an everyday uh, bloke who understood the concerns of everyday Australians, in contrast to a Labour Party which was so assured that it was going to have victory that it was able to wear its progressive um, talking points very proudly on its sleeve and prominently in its messaging and was seen to have lost the support of many of the working class Australian people of faith uh, that they had just assumed would support them as the party of the working people. And they saw the huge swings in the Western Sydney seats against sitting Labor members in what should be very safe seats. I think Chris Bowen's seat, someone told me, had a swing of 8% against him, which was unheard of. And much of that was put down to uh, the um, loss of support of the many different religious groups in his area who, who th thought that he had they had the, the, the Labor Party had sold them out and uh, given themselves over to progressive ideology, particularly LGBTQ ideology. Well, three years later, uh, the uh, Liberal government, the, the Morrison government, accused of uh, doing exactly the same. And uh, they have, as I said in my introduction, uh, they, uh, they have failed to deliver, you can say, broken uh, a promise. And uh, We've seen uh, what has happened to, to governments in the past that have uh, broken uh, election commitment uh, key uh, promises. And I have no, no doubt in my mind that Scott Morrison is a man of uh, deep uh, faith. Um, but in terms of uh, that uh, driving him as Prime Minister to do something 
persevere with a religious uh, discrimination act. He obviously fell short in that. Uh, he didn't really want to defend uh, Israel Folau, uh, uh when his contract got terminated. What was the line that he used? I think that issue has uh, uh, had enough uh, oxygen. And we'll go into how, uh, well, I'll allow you first to explain uh, how the uh, religious discrimination bill, how it became uh, it became so watered down, and then we'll uh, delve into how it eventually uh, fell over in the parliament. Sure. Tim, that's a massive subject, and it's got so many moving parts to it. I mean, just in your introduction, you talked about the fact that this has had such a long genesis. As compared to a lot of progressive legislation, particularly in Victoria, which can be introduced and passed in less than two months, this has had a five-year history and even longer for some of the advocates for religious liberty who've been wanting religious uh, belief and activity to have the same protections as other attributes have for a long time. But really, we sort of look at the first real issue where this arose was at the time of the same-sex marriage postal vote, the, the plebiscite, where it was recognised that to just simply change the marriage law would then put in jeopardy many of the institutions which still held to a traditional conception of marriage uh, to those who were uh, not able to endorse uh, same-sex marriage or the genderless marriage that we got from that legislation. And when key voices for religious liberty tried to amend the marriage law changes to include protections and a few balancing clauses to make sure that we didn't completely swing the pendulum the other way, those were all rejected. And it was said, let's no, let's not clog this up. The nation has spoken. Let's get this done. And we'll have a review afterwards, which was the Ruddock Review that put out a report in 2017, I believe, or 2018, which was kept secret and not released, but leaked uh, by the media piece by piece in late 2018. Then you had uh, Penny Wong's attempt to strip away protections for Christian schools in 2018, which was very important because exactly the same thing came up as the bill, the religious discrimination bill was going through Parliament. Um, but that became a, a key election issue, religious discrimination at the election in May 2019. Uh, it was heightened by issues like Israel Folau and uh, the policies of the, Liberal, the, the Labor Party, the ALP, which seemed to have lost touch. And arising from the campaign was Scott Morrison's promise that he would implement what the Ruddock Review had suggested and recommended, which was give religious freedom the same protection as other attributes have had, some for 40 years at, at, at a federal level. So sex discrimination has been illegal since 1977. Uh, religious discrimination is still allowed. Now, some states protect it, but New South Wales, for instance, doesn't. You could quite easily put up a sign in your bakery saying, in New South Wales, saying, we will not serve Jews or Muslims uh, or Christians, and it would be completely um, legal. There certainly wouldn't be the ability of a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim 
to take a discrimination claim in the same way you could do for any other attribute. And there is a compelling reason to have a religious discrimination bill when you look at it in its proper terms as compared to other attributes. And when you look at the real cases of discrimination that, that religious people are increasingly facing and not just Christians, but others. And yet the bill was constantly hijacked by an aggressive, anti-religious, secularist voice within the media, within activist groups, within policy and lobby uh, groups that are supposed to be facially neutral, but really quite antagonistic on these issues. And at the end, even as the bill had been watered down and took quite a, a neutral position and was far less than advocates thought of it, at the end, it was completely and utterly hijacked. I don't know if you remember this, but there was this outrage that the bill might allow Christian schools to expel gay children or reinforce rights that I, I said to already exist in the Sex Discrimination Act for Christian schools to uh, adversely treat gay kids, as, as the activists call them, or trans kids. Uh, not terms that, of course, we would use as religious people, but it was a fear-mongering tactic where a bill about religious discrimination was completely hijacked by LGBTQ activists. And there were plenty of people, most notably the moderate liberal MPs, who were quite willing to just be sycophantic mouthpieces for those activist views, which were completely unfounded, were just scare tactics, and were merely trying to, re to reintroduce what Penny Wong failed to do in 2018, which is strip away the protections for Christian schools, which keep activists out. And faced with a mediocre bill, and then a bill that had been hijacked and threatened protections in law for Christian schools, and thereby by extension for the Christian parents who want their children educated at Christian schools, I think most people said this is a disaster and it needs to be um, terminated. And so the bill needed to be uh, withdrawn and was. So that's sort of a, one aspect of, of what happened in the religious discrimination bill. And just before it was uh, introduced in that uh, sitting week in, in February, there was the, the uh, City Point uh, Christian uh, College uh, that... Uh, uh, enrollment contract that uh, burst into the media. It uh, aired on the, the Sunday project, and so it set the agenda uh, for uh, the week. And uh, obviously the intention uh, was to, to be upfront with prospective uh, parents and students. We're a Christian school. This is uh, what, uh, what we believe. But uh, it was twisted, and it... it this goes into uh, how uh, well, Christians who have a, who have a traditional uh, view of of sex and sexuality, they the secular and the, the the left the the far leftist militant LGBT lobby have been very successful in painting Christians as people who want to really marginalise and outcast 
those people in society who are same-sex attracted or have gender uh, dysphoria. And so they sold this enrollment contract is that if you are LGBT, we we think you're really low in society that's that's the that's the narrative that they've sold and uh, that is i think what fed into uh the uh, the deci- decision of those five liberals to cross the floor you would think so uh if you were looking at it just watching the media as it went past you uh from day to day but it's not actually the case uh these moderates had already been uh, active on this months in advance, months in advance. And in fact, the concerted attack on the protections for Christian schools had already been promised in correspondence from Scott Morrison in the beginning of December in a letter that he wrote to Anthony Albanese to try to get support to get the religious discrimination bill across the line. So the City Point was, was the City Point saga uh, unfolded just at a time that was uh, coincidental. Yeah, well, so- I was sort of saying it was good timing to like, really uh, make sure that uh, they could, well, kill this bill. That's it certainly sort of wasn't good press for a religious discrimination bill. It had nothing to do with the content of the religious discrimination bill but it allowed the opponents of the bill to reinforce their reason for hijacking the bill and making it about LGBTQ issues when, in fact, it had nothing to do with them whatsoever. And the City Point saga itself is an interesting lesson because what happened was that a school put out a contract thinking that its problems in dealing with issues of gender and issues of sexuality were going to confront them in a legal fashion. So they needed to have a legal preparation for it, hence a contract. Uh, What they didn't realize is that any sort of legal challenge was not going to come straight away. The first thing you face when you face hostility for your faith is never the legal challenge. It's the social pressure. It's being tried in the court of public opinion And that public opinion is shaped and fashioned by the activists in lockstep with the media. So it's interesting that this school, City Point, and again, I've not talked to City Point. I didn't work for City Point. Uh, I just read the media and I've given a few talks on it. They circulated to all of their parents a, a enrollment contract for students on a Friday afternoon. By Saturday morning, a Brisbane homosexual activist or uh, a very sort of prominent homosexual media uh, presence, uh, uh, internet presence, has got a copy of the contract, has put the whole thing on Twitter and has snipped out all of the bits that they can find that talk only about sexuality and gender. So there's about five parts of the contract and 16 pages that talk about gender and sexuality. The rest of the contract talks about the incredible richness of the education that you'll receive at a Christian school, the way that the school recognizes the dignity and worth of every human being, the way that the school will seek to meet children at their needs and minister to them wherever they are, however they are, and instill in them virtues of goodness, 
of love, of gentleness, et cetera, et cetera. Now, do you think that any of those particular uh, thoughts and sentiments, clauses, uh, principles that were all through this contract were brought to the attention of anyone in the public? None. None of those things. It was the five little bits that they could find that dealt with gender and sexuality. And it made it sound like the whole 16-page contract was fairly and squarely aimed at targeting uh, vulnerable children, when it's completely and utterly the opposite of that. And I think experience with Christian schools shows that they are the safest place for vulnerable children to be. They are a place which shields them from a hypersexual culture, which shields them from the work of activists who have been getting into our public school systems and pretty much run the wellness teams, the sexual education teams. And parents don't like this. That's why a lot of Christian schools are completely full, why their roles are growing by 20% every year, because parents simply don't want their kids indoctrinated into transgender ideology. And the activists hate this. And so what they do is they weaponize the kids to try to water down and dilute the stance that schools are taking, which are protecting kids and protecting parents and keeping the activists out. And that, that's what City Point was about. And that's why the religious discrimination bill was hijacked by a movement that wants to focus on this issue every time. It's worth making the point, though, that uh, many uh, uh, Christian schools of various denominations have fully embraced all of the uh, uh, ideology of the the, the public uh, schools. So it's uh, there's a lot of uh, faith-based schools, but uh, a lot of them, uh, to use another issue, a lot of them advance the, the climate agenda. So it's, it's certainly... Uh, Parents, uh, they, they they need to work out if they, they want their, their children to receive a more traditional education workout, uh, not just send them to any Christian school, but uh, find the, the best one. Oh, that's right. There's certainly many schools that go under the moniker Christian, which for a long time have had little or no uh, formation in Christian doctrines, Christian beliefs, Christian virtues, but have largely taken... Uh, a very secular ideology and sprinkled it with a, a little bit of Christian sprinkles. Uh, but thankfully, not all Christian schools are like that. In fact, there are many, many good schools out there still uh, trying to be faithful to the basis and tenets of, of Christianity and express that in their teaching for the benefit of everybody, not just for their Christian students, but for the students who come in from the outside uh, who benefit from having a Christian education, who are never forced or compelled into a religion uh, or coerced against their will, but uh, really benefit from being in a system which practices those virtues. And now those virtues are under attack. Going back to what I was saying about how the, the media and the activists spend the, the City Point contract, that they, they that it was designed to uh, say that... Uh, gay and trans people were, were not welcome. And uh, I, that's the successful narrative that they've uh, 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 tried to like paint the, the, the Christian lobby. And uh, you, they broadened it in the, the Equality Australia put out an ad uh, against the uh, proposed religious discrimination bill where they had a whole bunch of LGBT 
people talk about if this law passes, then uh, LGBT people will be discriminated, not just in schools, but in healthcare, aged care, disability care, social care. And uh, they are always able to wheel out uh, Ian Thorpe. Uh, he even went to, to Canberra uh, yes. on, on one occasion because... Obviously, he, he he is somebody who struggled with his sexuality for many years because of, of society and only recently had the courage to come out. And so he's able to be the, the main face that uh, what Christians believe and is and other other uh, traditional views on sexuality can hurt uh, LGBT people. And so this is why... Uh, these laws are uh, a bad idea. And uh, some of the other, um, this is also, uh, there can also be complaints against uh, Christian doctors and other medical uh, professionals because they hold traditional uh, Christian uh, views as well. It's, it's this whole thing that your views uh, can really damage, damage people. This is the argument. Yeah, it's 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 increasingly uh, how the argument has migrated over the years. It used to be that sticks and stones could break your bones, but names could never hurt you. And now uh, that's turned into a narrative that names often hurt you and cause much more damage than the uh, minor damage and temporary damage of getting hit with a stick or a stone, uh, but have complex um, mental health implications that will last for years and can often cause uh, all sorts of horrible outcomes such as suicide etc and it has been a successful narrative but if you peel back the layers of that narrative it really does not hold water and there's not a lot of a real basis for trying to advance that narrative other than for pure and naked political purposes the campaign that was waged by equality australia against the uh, religious discrimination bill was uh, disingenuous, was scaremongering, and arguably is going to cause more mental health problems for LGBT Australians uh, than the religious discrimination bill because of the the vile mistruths uh, that were propagated by that campaign about what was going to be allowed and legal if the religious discrimination bill passed. And none of it held water if it was subjected to a microscope. If you ask them the question, well, how is this bill going to uh, turn out to, 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 to allow the hypothetical that you've talked about? So one of the ones I think they said was that if this bill passes, um, the carer at your uh, childcare facility can come up and take your, your child out of the car and then tell you that you're going to hell because you're a lesbian mum. And that would be okay. So there were all these warnings about various kinds of speeches that could be made, uh, and not just to LGBTQ people, but that, say, a Christian could come up to someone with a disability and say, your disability is caused by your sin or because you don't love God, because you don't have enough faith, uh, and insult a disabled person that way. And that is complete and utter nonsense. It's absolutely fanciful. There was nothing in the bill that allowed that at all. 
it completely ignored the fact that most of those behaviours have legal remedies against them now, which will remain unchanged. Duties that you have to your employer, uh, duties that you have uh, to the customer that are Im imposed by your employer, which are reasonable directions in your employment, which would stop a health care worker, which would stop a child carer, which would stop a disability provider from saying those things. It's it's either they're illegal now and there are laws in place that have been enforced many, many times to stop people from saying rude things to customers or to and, people. Uh, Christian, like, uh, even if it was legal, like uh, Christians, the like, overwhelming majority wouldn't say that. Well, the interesting thing is, is that who do you think historically has been most concerned for the disabled in Western cultures, in the cultures that we live in? It's Christians. Christians were the first ones to start up orphanages. Christians were the first ones to start up homes for the blind. Christians were known in the first century in Rome to be the ones who didn't commit infanticide, who didn't get rid of the young girls, who had a concern for the weak and the disabled. And now you've got this fanciful hypothetical being raised that Christians are going to go around telling people that their disability is caused by sin. Well, Christians are responsible for most of the disabled care still in Australia. And yet there hasn't been that narrative at all, that counter narrative that's been able to make its way into the public perception. So if you talk to your everyday average Australian, they're quite happy that the religious discrimination bill uh, didn't pass, or they're at least they're indifferent. I mean, they don't see the compelling need for it, uh, neither, and they know that there was some controversy and they don't like controversy, so it's good that it didn't pass. With the the, the passing of uh, the, the same-sex marriage, because it was a, a public vote of sorts, it wasn't a, a plebiscite per se, but a postal survey, and it was 80% uh, of Australians who responded, 61% yes, 39%. No, and the no. since because of that that strong well, you'd, you'd call it two uh, two party preferred vote if you're going to use it in political terms, <laughs> yeah. It's because because it was such a a strong mandate. That's also why uh, the religious uh, discrimination bill was able to be basically turned on its head to say it needs to be about actually protecting more, uh, protecting LGBT people further, because this is what uh, the, the public voted for in uh, t uh, 2017. And certainly there'd be uh, politicians who'd be aware of this and it's like, well, I don't want to go too ad on a limb for people who are the minority now because... Uh, I, I still want to get, well, the Liberals still want to win all their inner city uh, seats and they, they also want to uh, keep uh, keep Twitter and the, the mainstream media happy. So certainly not the legalisation of same-sex marriage itself, but the public vote has really, uh, I think, turned the, the, the tide against... Uh, uh, turned the tide against uh, protecting... Uh, faith, because well, we live in a hyper-partisan era where it's like you lose, uh, you suffer. Yeah, I think we also live in an era where we are lacking in conviction politicians. Uh, we have politicians who are primarily motivated by ensuring that they 
keep their majorities, they keep their seats in parliament, uh, and that they make short-term decisions that will, will yield short-term uh, political results. And I think that was the fate of the religious discrimination bill. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of uh, Scott Morrison, uh, and there are aspects to criticise for sure of the way that the carriage of the bill was was um, progressed. Uh, it would have been good to see it have more urgency on the agenda than it had. That uh, it was interesting that the reason why the bill was delayed was supposedly because of COVID. Yet, if you look at some of the worst and most pernicious progressive legislation that's been passed in the last two and a half years, it's been done right in the middle of COVID and not just in Australia, but overseas as well. COVID certainly hasn't stopped really, really uh, uh, invasive progressive legislation and shouldn't have stopped what was a rather benign and 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 um, reasonable religious discrimination bill from being progressed quickly. But you had the issues with Christian Porter had carriage of it, and he was the one pushing forward the bill. And then he, of course, was subject to quite a lot of controversy, had to step down, and that was taken up again by um, the new Attorney General. What's her name? You remember the name of the the new Attorney? Michaelia Cash. Uh, Michaelia Cash, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she, uh, I believe in the past, has addressed Australian Christian lobby conferences. Like she is from the conservative right. Yeah, but I think by the time she got the bill, there was, firstly, you've got a lot of water under the bridge and you've had a process that's been leading to the progressive watering down of the bill over time and it's not going to get stronger. It's only going to get weaker. Secondly, she's dealing with the political realities that are in front of her, which are a, a, a Liberal Party which has been incredibly disciplined on government policy up till now, but on this issue, it's going to really uh, be a dividing line for many of the uh, moderates who are in those inner city seats uh, for whom religious discrimination bill is going to, to be electoral poison for them or so uh, they would they they think I mean these are all people who now have independence going up against them from the voices of campaigners in, uh, in oh yeah totally so um, and they are all of course strong conservatives and in Menzies in 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 the small l liberal tradition uh, is I think how they are often are described um, and I can't think of any candidates who are probably less Menzies and less small l liberal but. Nonetheless, that we digress. Uh, what I was saying was that effectively Cash was dealing with uh, that sort of political reality in her own party. You've got a, a Labour Party who has been chastened at the last election and wants to make themselves a small target on religious freedom. So it's going to make general noises of support uh, uh, for motherhood and apple pie statements without putting their stake in the ground and as well likes to sit by and with the popcorn and watch the Liberal Party implode on this issue, um, which they did. And then you've got the government departments that are actually drafting and giving the legal advice. And all of those are staffed with people who either don't understand religion and, and religious Australians at all, or are actively hostile to them and will just pick up the um, talking points 
of parties like Equality Australia and just throw them back at at the advocates for this bill and suggest that what is being asked for, which has been granted in relation to other attributes, can't be done here. And so that those are some of the factors that went into the demise of the religious discrimination bill. If it was going to pass, it needed to be done quickly, confidently, and with conviction. And none of those things were a, a hallmark of its passage. The only good things I can say were some of the um, strong support given by conservatives within the uh, Liberal National Government, a very, very good introductory speech by Scott Morrison when he introduced the bill, and the fact that he personally introduced the bill himself as a person of faith, even as the bill faced headwinds. I mean, those are not to be scoffed at. Um, there were also some good things that did make their way into the bill. Uh, nothing mind-blowing, but there were some good uh, aspects to it. But in my view, as soon as it got hijacked by its opponents and was made to be about Christian schools and the treatment of vulnerable kids, uh, then it was really it really got depth charged at that stage and was not worth pursuing. Meanwhile, you look at the the other side here uh, in uh, Victoria. Despite uh, uh, Victoria being shut down most of uh, 2020 2021, Dan Andrews still had time to to ram ram through uh, the gay conversion uh, therapy ban. Again, I'm using yes. uh, inverted. Uh, Comes uh, was uh, titled. Well, the full the full title was the Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Act. And again, the uh, the well the, the justification or the the narrative that was put forward why this legislation was necessary. Well, this wasn't uh, explicitly said, but it was alluded to that uh, 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 that. Uh, Christian uh, pray away the gay camps back in the day uh, subjected uh, vulnerable children to, to cruelty and uh, there, there's some who've even advocated for electroshock therapy. So that's what it was sold as. We'll stop uh, these extremist Christians from electroshock therapying vulnerable teenagers and driving them to suicide. That that was the, the narrative the bill was sold as. Yeah, and again... Uh, that narrative was completely unfounded, particularly the idea that Christians anywhere were ever using any sort of electroshock therapy. And I've been in a lot of different churches in my job and had a, a lot of different contact with a lot of different groups. And none of them have ever had anything remotely like electroshock therapy equipment in their churches. So to say that Christians were doing that is completely laughable. Uh, and, 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 isn't borne out with any research. There was a school of psychiatry that thought that aversion therapy by electric shock or by stimulating the brain with electric shocks was going to be effective for dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction. No one was ever subjected to that as a child, only adults. There was one clinic in Sydney which did it during the 1950s that I think that people are aware of, but it largely fell out of fashion and, and died a natural death. Interestingly, that kind of electroshock therapy is still used as a real and viable treatment for people who suffer mental distress and other psychological disorders. It's not meant to be a punishment or some sort of torture, but was meant to be some a, a way of electronically stimulating um, the brain. 
And yet this this narrative, this boogeyman story that's pervaded all of the discussion on conversion therapy to suggest that Christians were doing this, and it just wasn't happening. Indeed, there was a study called Pre Preventing Harm, Promoting Justice, which was done by Latrobe, a gay and lesbian health lobby group, which went around and tried to find as many stories as they could about people who had experienced conversion therapy. And the best they could come up with from all around Australia was 15 stories of people who had uh, had, uh, say, um, gone to a camp and heard a speaker about uh, who was who claimed to be ex-gay and where they were uh, often uh, encouraged not to be gay. Almost all, none of them faced any sort of coercive um, therapies. At most, they would have people praying over them or in, engaging in a deliverance kind of ministry, again, which is non-invasive and non-coercive. Almost all of them were adults and many of them voluntarily went or enthusiastically went. Some of them even reported favorably about aspects of it uh, in this report. But there's 15 people. And this is the only, it called itself the only research about this in Australia. And it was the basis for the passing of this law uh, on a false premise, on a scare story. The other interesting thing is, is that they then went and said, well, are there any people who've actually benefited from talk therapy who actually have experienced unwanted same-sex attraction, have gone to get counseling and have had positive outcomes and positive benefits. There was a website called freetochange.org, which cataloged 88, 89 stories of people who had had positive experiences. And those were completely ignored. Do you think any of those people could get an audience with a sitting labor parliamentarian or with Dan Andrews or get in front of government to talk about the way that religious therapy, professional psychological help, et cetera, had actually made their lives better, had decreased all of their morbidities, had given them confidence uh, to be able to live normal heterosexual lives that they'd always wanted, uh, normal lives in terms of identity, because of course, the transgender issue was smushed into and, and added into these conversion therapy bills, and indeed seems to be the real point of them, uh, which is to prop up what is a nonsense transgender ideology and force everyone to abide by it. So those laws passed in a matter of you know, weeks, months in Queensland. Uh, there was a little bit of pushback in Queensland in a committee, thankfully, but in ACT and Victoria, they just shot through. Uh, and that's a real interesting contrast to the religious discrimination bill and tells you a little bit about the zeitgeist and the political climate that we're in when progressive laws that are really anti-Christian can sail through without a problem and a largely unremarkable religious discrimination bill gets stuck in the mud for four years and ultimately is unsuccessful. Well, uh, Victoria uh, was the first state to uh, uh, decriminalize abortion that spread all throughout uh, Australia and New Zealand same with euthanasia and now with these uh, these uh, uh, conversion therapy bans so the history is uh, once uh, once a, a huge uh, uh, cultural law is changed in Victoria it tends to mm. go all throughout uh, Australia and New Zealand, uh, but uh, the reality, like the actual reality of uh, this Victorian uh, bill, uh, is that it 
it can have like possibly have the effect of well it does have the effect of like criminalize can criminalize private conversations even if there's a gender confused child if there's if there's a discussion about or oh, uh, that uh not affirming it uh yep, th- absolutely they'll outgrow it that can be considered illegal so a, a parents who have raised and grown up with a child and know their child intimately and love them unconditionally and maybe this child's 12 years old and a family counselor with a degree off the back of a cereal box at a school says your child is gender dysphoric and needs to be put on uh, puberty blockers if the parents were to oppose that and tell the child wait wait don't take these steps which are going to cause irreversible damage to your body which we think are just a passing phase, which oftentimes they are. If they say, wait, this law criminalizes parents. It criminalizes parents who have the best interest of their child at heart and allows state organs, uh, professionals who uh, are oftentimes are, are, um, are trying to pursue a progressive agenda on these things, to be able to coerce parents and force them into this, which they're doing already without conversion therapy laws. But now there's the sanction of criminality hanging over the heads of parents. And it's just an absolutely shocking law. And over the course of the the pandemic over the past two years with the various lockdowns and and restrictions the the governments have forced uh, the the churches and other houses of worship to, to close and uh, for some periods uh, towards the end of last year I actually made them enforce vaccine passes and also enforce mask mandates as well there was that uh, 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 an incompre- it's still incomprehensible that wa police officer who went into a into catholic, catholic church, church to yeah. check mask exemptions that never happened in victoria if they wanted to uh, obviously here in victoria there was that crackdown on orthodox jews uh, du- uh, uh during uh the Yes, but the Victoria Police never dared go into the synagogue because mm. obviously that yes. brings up uh, what happened in Germany in the 1930s, which is why I was taken aback that the, 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 the state, uh, it's come to that, that you have a police officer in there regulating how the the congregation is happening in real time yeah absolutely the uh rules that and 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 the the mandates that were put in place and the requirements for vaccine passports that were put in place for places of worship but also wider throughout um the various uh, public aspects of, of our lives that were that were so draconianly uh, restricted. I mean, they're just wicked laws, and they should never have been have been passed. But the Australian populace seems to be largely happy with the way that those things were put in place, and had very little concerns 
uh, and and or or premiums placed on freedoms in general if there was any sort of threat to safety. I think what it's shown us is that people, if they're given a crisis, will always choose safety over freedom. They'll they'll much rather have the government tell them what they can do and when than be given information, have to weigh it themselves and make their own decisions. I mean, this is such a massive topic. I don't want to get into it, but certainly we've seen a disproportionate overreach into religious exercise during the COVID pandemic. And the ironic thing is, is that a lot of the impositions on religious freedom have been done in the name of, well, look, keep what you're doing in your own head, keep what you're doing inside your own church, you know, do it in your own church. And now even with these kinds of restrictions, those rules are reaching into the church and compelling uh, uh, behaviors, compelling uh, the sort of passport um, uh, checking requirements that is completely antithetical to the fundamental beliefs of Christians and other religions. And there's some good challenges that have been done to those worldwide. Uh, but in Australia, we have fragile protection for all freedoms, including religious freedom. And we just simply haven't had uh, a real case, a viable case that we could take to challenge those those mandates. I mean, even New Zealand's in a better position than us. They've got one case being taken on behalf of, I think, 120, 130 churches, about 10 mosques and a couple of pastors, which have banded together to challenge the um, the traffic light system and the passport system that they've got in New Zealand uh, for churches. And it has a good chance of being successful. Cases here, not really got much much of a chance. Uh, so the Human Rights Law Alliance is uh, very realistic about uh, what uh, what avenues are available to, to challenge not just uh, the the uh, COVID laws mandates uh, regarding uh, houses of worship, but also in the the cases that you uh, take on because Australia has no Bill of Rights or anything like that. Our constitution's basically the well, the separation of powers division between state and, and federal. So you're 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 very like you're very I notice on your your FAQs on your your website, you're very blunt about if this happens in your if you say this in your workplace, this is likely to happen. And yep, yeah, I mean, we, we we're trying to provide a system of precedent by running the best cases using the best lawyers and the best experts to get the best results. And really, what we're trying to do is sandbag religious freedom against the flood of opposition that's coming against it, but not just because that's going to make a, a better society by itself. I mean, we are Christians. That's why we do the work we do. And we believe that we need to have space for people to be living out their Christian faith because that's good for society, sharing and observing their Christian faith because that's good for society, uh, being confident and robust in their disagreement with others and confident in the way that they express and free to express and live out the ways that they are different from the whatever is the prevailing and fashionable narrative of the day because that is good for a tolerant and civil society uh, and so that requires christians to do that and live that way and if we, we can run all the cases we want but if christians aren't actively out there and living it then 
uh, it's not going to change anything and it's not going to help Australian society. That's what we think. And it is like, uh, I, I think it is sad that uh, a lot of the cases that uh, you've taken on, it's just Christians being persecuted because they're being honest. Like I want Christians to be honest in their beliefs. I want, like, as as you were talking about the, the pluralistic, uh, society we we have lost that frank and fearless uh, exchange of ideas i mean yep. i'm an atheist i've interviewed you for an hour my producer uh margo who helped uh arrange arrange uh this interview she's a christian me and her we work fed- fantastically uh putting on uh this show and and other unshackled uh productions we don't agree on everything politically either but we have we have over overarching values about free speech uh a free society yep and you'll find that within christianity as well there are plenty of people i have absolute disagreements with about on things that i think are very important where i think they're very wrong but it doesn't mean i'd strike them off my christmas card list list or go nuts against them on Twitter or Instagram or cancel them as my friend on Facebook. Um, and sadly, that's sort of happening in a wider culture, not just for people of religion, but they've largely been the canaries in the coal mine on these issues. They have really been the ones who've seen cancel culture before it was cancel culture, and now it's pervading the rest of society. And it isn't a good thing because ideas aren't being met with ideas. They're being met with cancellation, lawfare, uh, social media pressure, etc. that all of those things which shut down the probing of all ideas by other ideas to see which ideas are the best. So uh, now, as I mentioned at the start of the show, the federal election will be called uh, any day now. I know you're the younger Hemsworth uh, uh, brother, no, don't do political yes. lobbying. <laughs> yeah, but the the uh, the Christian the Christian lobby, the Chris Hemsworth older brother uh, during the federal election has its various uh, candidate uh, forums, and it's uh, what is uh, what do you think that uh, Christian like uh, what Christians should be or looking out for expecting. Will will the uh, Morrison recommit to trying the religious discrimination bill again? What's your thoughts about uh, how uh, Christians should see the, the the next federal election? Big question. I think the most important thing is to look at your local candidates. I think people are increasingly not just voting by a party but looking at where people stand on particular issues. And I think it needs wisdom and judgment on trying to put in play into parliament the best person who's going to represent you in the local electorate, but also look at what's going to be the best party or the best circumstances for uh, the main issues that are important for you. So as Christians, I think you should look at who's going to do the best job for the whole of society, including the protection of religious freedom. I don't like to be a someone who advocates people to only vote for people for what they're going to do for you, but vote for someone who's got a real sense of civic duty and is a conviction politician. Uh, It's been interesting. I often will talk to large groups of generally conservative and generally Christian people, and I'll often take a straw poll about where they would vote on a 
on a um, in an election where there would be Labor, Liberal, Greens, other. And usually there's a massive amount of Liberal voters in there, uh, over 50%, sometimes up to 80%. As I've been leading up to this election, the amount of people who've been voting uh, Liberal in my very unscientific straw polls of small numbers uh, of people of almost exclusively conservative bent, those people say they're deserting the Liberal Party in droves and they feel politically homeless because they're not flocking to Labour, but they usually stand up for some sort of hybrid of either um, the, the, the independence, uh, I presume conservative independence, or donkey votes. Even some have been confident to say that. And that seems to be an interesting state of affairs and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out at the election. Um, yes, the the others in the in the opinion polls, it's it's sort of uh, dismissed a lot of the time in the commentary. It's all about the two party preferred. But uh, on election day, where the the others fall, particularly in the upper house, uh, that could be could be something noteworthy. It'll be interesting to see because a lot of people say they'll vote for an independent, and that feels like they get to the ballot box, and that never actually happens. Um, so, but we live in interesting times, Tim. And uh, you know, I, don't, I don't want to predict things. I don't want to be Peter Onselin. Remember, he said, you know, if if Labor uh, doesn't win the 2019 election, you can you can basically disregard anything I say ever from then. So, well, well look at uh, what's happened over uh, since the last federal election. I mean, uh, <laughs> obviously the, the pandemic is the big thing, but now we've got the uh, the war in Russia, Ukraine. Uh, you're a fool if you uh, think you can predict uh, what's what's going to happen even in a, in a month or, 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 two, or two months. Uh, but it's, it's certainly uh, having a... a a wide view perspective and just taking a breath to, to analyze things is the, the most important. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting with you tonight, uh, uh, John, to well, just, uh, I know tonight I've put a lot of sort of, this is the, this is the narrative that's been you know, put forward and you've done a good job explaining why that that's, that's not true, which is, it's been extremely informative in, in informative discussion with you. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you, Tim, and thanks for having me on. And uh, hopefully we get another chance to do the net rest of the 95% of surveying the field of religious liberty and uh, implications for Australia. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you. And so the, the website, again, is uh, hrla.org.au, and you're also on Facebook. Correct. We have a minuscule Facebook presence that we hope to beef up one day. And uh, yes, look at our website. It's got cases. We also run the australiawatch.com.au website, which is a catalogue of all religious freedom cases, not just ours, that we're hoping to augment so that we have a real good catalogue of where Christians are facing and other people of religion are facing hostility. And we are a not-for-profit. We exist on the basis of donations. So if I can put in a plug, if yep. you feel like donating to our work, do so at the HRLA website. Uh, it keeps us going. It keeps us able to do our work rather than having to go around with the collection plate and trying to collect money. Uh, and the work we're doing is good. I mean, we help people. 
Uh, people are very uh, pleased with the work we're able to do for them. And it's nice to have someone standing up against uh, a lot of the organs of state, the progressive activists, et cetera, who seem to wield so much power. Um, we definitely are a David against a Goliath at the moment, and it's it's good and it's rewarding work and it has eternal benefit. Oh, well, uh, I'm sure you'll keep it up. Take care, John. Thanks, Tim. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody, uh, that's uh, the show uh, for tonight. Uh, there's going to be another uh, Wilms front on Thursday. I've got uh, Anthony uh, Lev, uh, one of the, the, the main uh, spokes, spokespeople for the Melbourne Freedom Rally. Uh, obviously, I'm going to uh, ask him with the, well, the federal election might be called uh, by that time. I what, uh, what are the the plans or what uh, what is the uh, freedom movement on the lookout uh, when it comes f- uh, for election time? So that'll be uh, at the usual time, 8.30pm Melbourne time on the, the Wilmsfront channels. And then I'll be back with Trad Tasman Talk uh, Friday evening on the Unshackled YouTube channel with uh, Dewey DeBoer. All right, everybody, take care. Have a, a safe and sane and happy week. And I'll see you on Thursday. Thanks for tuning in to Wilmsfront. Visit timwilms.com or Rational Rise TV to view the archive of episodes. And keep visiting theunshackled.net to view all our shows. And to keep up with the latest real news and analysis.